That's a, Mike Tyson has the, the famous quote that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and, and that's, you know, careers are often that way. I think it's the privileged few that really either work, well, especially work for someone else and go on cruise control. A lot yeah. of people end up going off on their own so that they have more control over their destinies. And for the rest of us, we bob and weave the best we can and, and manage it as it, as it comes along. Welcome to The Defense Never Rests with Morgan and Akins, your monthly dose of uncommon sense about all things legal and some that are not. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of The Defense Never Rests. I'm your host, joined by Lindsay again. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Megan. How's it going? Good. Welcome back. You're becoming more of a regular with me, and I love it. Thanks. I appreciate it. I'm in, I'm enjoying the podcast life a little bit. Um, yes. I got some good feedback from the first one that I was participated in that got released last week. And, you know, I of course sent it to everybody and I was like, you have to listen to this. You know? <laughs> Tell me what you think. <laughs> you know, I was at, what was I, I was somewhere recently and they're like, you have a podcast. I was like, yeah, you want to come on? Like, no way. <laughs> it's like, I promise it. I I'm, I'm very nice. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not make I anyone like look bad. <laughs> most people are, unless that's like the goal of your podcast is to make yeah. people look bad. But fortunately that's not what we do here. <laughs> I think there's a general fear about people hate hearing themselves talk and, and the sound of their voices, which I, I totally agree. I don't like hearing myself talk or the sound of my voice either. So I understand that, that fear. And I think that is a hesitation for many before yeah. coming on a podcast. I mean, I that's why I told everybody else to listen to it, not yeah, me. So I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> not well, because it's bad, it's just because I don't want to hear my own voice. <laughs> well, so today we have on Adam Brownstein, who I've known for a, a number of years. Uh, he and I, you know, went to the same same college, not at the same time, but connected after law school because he actually was pretty helpful with trying to help me find a job when I got graduated law school and I didn't have a job or any prospects. And he you know, he, he spent some time, looked up from my resume, gave me a lot of, you know, pointers and hints. And, you know, we've stayed in touch over the years. Um, so I'm super happy to have him on. He's had a bob and weave, you know, career that I think a lot of us can relate to. Um, so I asked him to come on and, you know, talk about, you know, his career progression and, you know, what he's learned, you know, throughout the years. So with that, let's bring him in. Good morning, Adam. Welcome to this episode of the Defense of Arrest. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you. I, I'm so happy to have you on. And for our, our listeners out there, you and I have known each other for quite quite some time. In fact, I would say, I think when I graduated law school, you were kind enough to sit down with me and go over my resume and help help me get a job. <laughs> so I appreciate the this like full circle. Now you're coming on the podcast. Like I, I think it's awesome. That's what we Georgetown people do for each other, right? <laughs> yes. it's, oh, it's a Hoya life. Yes, Hoya's for whole- life. Hoya Network, man, it it, it yeah. works. Like, and I, I remember when during that time when I when I graduated law school, and I didn't have a job. I, I like literally reached out to every Georgetown alum in the Philadelphia region, and like basically like was like, here's my resume. Who do you know? <laughs> yeah. And you were kind enough to be like, I'll help you. <laughs> yeah, I mean that's sometimes that's what you have to do, and yeah, you know, the, the lightning bolt strikes. And look at you now. Yes, totally. So, yeah. so I ask this of everyone who come comes on, because um, we all have different, uh, you know, paths that we took to get either into claims or as an attorney. And you know, you, you started out practicing as attorney, and now, now, and then you, then you were in house at an insurance company. Now you're at a broker. But you know, how did how was your path to deciding to go to law school? Was it something you always knew you, you wanted to do, or were you like me who just didn't know what else to do. So I just did that. (laughs) Yeah. um, My first job working in an actual office um, was when I was 16 years old. It was during the summer. My dad's best friend, who still is a lawyer in Philadelphia. And I spent the summer doing the most incredible gopher work that you can imagine. Um, Everything from changing the big like five gallon jugs of water (laughs) to running things over to the prothonotary's office. So I learned very early that it's not prothonotary, it's prothonotary. Um, <laughs> but that's filing. the only way you know how to spell it, though, if you have to say it that <laughs> yes. way. It's a mouthful. Um, and, and anything that they needed. I was a runner. I, I filed things, um, carried boxes, you know, help, whatever it was. But this man who has known me literally since I was an infant 
um, is the most honorable person. And I watched what he did for his clients. His clients were mostly individuals and small businesses. And I, I just had such an amazing respect for him and the work that he did and the effort that he made. And I think I kind of fell in love with law at a very early age, maybe. Um, at that point, my father was a CPA, so he was not an attorney, although my sister is also an attorney. Um, we both ended up in the field doing something totally different. But um, And then I was a history Spanish dual major at Georgetown, which means either you're <laughs> teaching most likely or maybe law school. So um, it, it just ended up that way. And I, I ended up going to GW, which was 10 blocks away from yeah. or 15 blocks away from where we went to school. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I did take a pit stop at GW too for grad school. <laughs> it's like the natural yep. pit stop. Like, can't go too far away. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah, the dean, my my acceptance letter had a handwritten note for the dean saying, Hey, come come stop by, you know, sometime. But yeah. Yeah. For for anyone who's not familiar, like Georgetown is on this like hilltop and then like pretty much like you know a mile and a half down the street is GW and that like more of the center of DC um, with an actual, you know, metro stop, whereas Georgetown didn't have one, but you know, you, you could walk there. <laughs> yep. yep. It was a tale of two cities because like Georgetown, both of us would have lived on campus or immediately right off campus. And at GW, I lived in the Virginia suburbs. I took the metro mm -hmm. into school every day. So it was just like a, I was living in the same city. And as you know, I probably worked 20 hours a day between school and homework and putting index, you know, of all my notes and getting my outline ready. So it was, it was like a completely different life than what I'd had as an undergrad. Yeah. And that's a totally digress into DC living, but, um, the, and like, I remember in, in undergrad, like anyone who lived in Virginia, like, Oh, you live so far away. And then, yeah. <laughs> but then once you graduated, it was like, Oh, well, that's the most affordable place to live. And it was only a two Metro stops, you know, yeah. away from everything. So it made perfect sense. But in college, it was like, Oh, they, they live in Virginia. Like we can't go <laughs> hang out at their place. <laughs> like, I no, did a stint a in DC myself, and oh, I found really. that the hardest thing was going underground into the metro and then like popping up someplace else. And I did not have any concept of where I was geographically when I came up on the other side. I mean, I knew where I was going to come up back out of the metro, but if you had asked me if that was north, south, east, or west from oh. where I started, I was like, I don't know. I'm, just, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. follow, follow the map <laughs> yeah yeah and then one day the metro was like down and I had to like walk some like level of distance and I was like oh my gosh that's where that metro station is and that's how I if I just okay all right I'm like this is proving to be pretty helpful cool I'm like glad this broke I guess you know it's a hot summer day but I mean we gotta Look at the bright side somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Only, humidity only at like 92%. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Balmy. Balmy. Yeah. So, so anyway, so you go go to GW um, and, you know, did you have a plan for, for after graduation or have an idea of, you know, what area of law you wanted to go into or did you kind of fall into, into something based on what, what was going on in the economy and the world right that, at that time? Yeah, I think when I went in, I was open, um, almost like an undeclared major mm -hmm. in, in the undergrad and thought that the classes probably would help me figure out exactly where I wanted to go. Um, and I had the typical first year. Second year, I worked at the Department of Justice during school, got credit for it. But in an area of the law that ended up, it was um, basically like uh, EEOC type of, of work. Um, and I love the people I work with. I'm still friends with some of them at this point, but it was not what I think ultimately I wanted to do for my career. And I applied to a slew of firms for summer work and was hired in between my second and third year by a longstanding, like back to the 1940s communications boutique firm. Mm. And so they did all aspects of communications law, um, FCC, obviously, but also um, patent and trademark office. Um, there was a lot of commercial work of transactions of buying and selling radio stations. Um, and in particular, I think I got hired because there was a big litigation case, which was unusual for this firm, maybe like 
10 to 15 attorneys and not a, a big house and they needed an extra body to assist them um, in handling particularly the discovery pieces of the litigation. And I just kind of fell in love with communications law. Yeah. I ended up taking a class during my third year. I worked 20 hours a week while I was in a third year student. Uh, they made me an offer. Um, and so my initial intention was to be a transactional and regulatory attorney. I thought that fit my personality far better than litigation. I'm not a confrontational um, person. I don't take joy from, you know, the back and forth. And um, uh, it, it's, I'm a pretty low key person by personality, but um, eventually, and I, I don't know if you want me to, to just proceed into it, our firm got yeah. bought up by a bigger firm because our practice was declining as a result of some regulatory changes. In um, particular, at that point, there was massive consolidation going on in the radio industry and the TV industry. And in April of 2021, I was laid off in the middle of a recession. That was the dot-com recession. And it was there were, no, there were very few jobs. I took every interview I could get. Um, but was not successful. Mm -hmm. Luckily for me, a, a big, one of the biggest law firms, McDerm McDermott, Will and Emery, had a, a project they were doing for a large client that needed staffing. And I worked for them for six months. And um, my mentor at the time from, from the initial law firm that I had worked for said, well, Adam, thankfully the world always has jerks. So if I were you, I would look into litigation. And yeah, that honest to God story. And my, my father said to me, he said, look, I, you know, I know you're interviewing, you haven't had luck, but if I could get you an interview in Philadelphia, would you take it? And I said, yeah, I, I can't, at this point, I can't be too picky. And sure enough, his banker was the banker for a law firm that had offices in Westchester and Philadelphia. I had an interview on Friday, I think, in Philadelphia. I came up for it. I had the interview two hours later. They called me and made me an offer where they said it's contingent upon you starting on Monday. <laughs> and so for the first like two months, I was commuting back and forth. I would stay with my, my family in Philadelphia during the week and work uh -huh. and then would leave on Friday night, drive back to Virginia and slowly pack my, my life up. Yeah. And so I am barred in... Virginia, DC, Pennsylvania, and New Jersey. And at the moment I use none of them for what I do. <laughs> well, uh, sometimes that is the case. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's amazing how that, like those things work too. Cause I, I was in the similar situation as you and I, I graduated law school in, in a, a, a downturn in the 2027 uh, crash. And I originally wanted to do like real estate transactional work and that was just not happening in 2007. So I had to do the, the same thing to do the contract work for, for some time. And thank, thank God for that stuff though. Yeah. You know, like it, it helped cause I, I needed to make money. Those loans, I, I started, had, had to start paying my loans back. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. those weren't going away. Um, but I don't know about the environment that you were in, but the one that I was in, it was, it was, I was thankful to have something that I could bring in money, but it was the most depressing work I could have ever, ever done. It was like, you were in a room with like a hundred people, you know, <laughs> yeah. it was just terrible. Um, everyone was miserable, but it, it served a purpose. Um, <laughs> I was just gonna say, I feel like my legal career like started out like, I mean, completely accidentally, like I'm not, there was zero really intentional, happening there you know and I feel like but it started out with working with somebody who was very feisty I guess is the best way to say it and it kind of led me to where I am now because now like I mean we do litigation and I'm like that's my favorite part is you know I'm like send me in and you know you say you're low-key and I'm like yeah no I'm I'm, uh, I'm pretty high strong <laughs> but it works out it's totally fine you know yep. but it's funny how like listening to you guys like tell your stories about like the way that this happens and I know like I'm a, I'm a little bit uh younger and behind haven't been practicing as long but the way that it all seems to kind of like move you towards like where you are now and you know I love I love hearing everybody's uh lawyer origin stories you know that's a, Mike Tyson has the, the famous quote that everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and, 
and that's you know careers are often that way i think it's the privileged few that really either work well especially work for someone else and go on cruise control a lot yeah. of people end up going off on their own so that they have more control over their destinies and for the rest of us we bob and weave the best we can yeah. and and manage it as it as it comes along i mean it's kind of like having kids you have a plan until you have your kids <laughs> zero plan after that (laughs) like I plan to have them and now like it's it's not up to me anymore (laughs) so but so you were at that that first firm for for some while a while and then you pivoted you you moved on on from there so um you know how, how did how did your career path kind of travel until you eventually you got um to inside the insurance industry yeah, I, so I, because litigation was not my first choice and because I always sort of secretly felt it wasn't the perfect fit with my personality, I was lucky to find a niche within litigation that worked for me. And the firm that hired me in November of 2001 in Philadelphia really specialized in litigation management. We were national and regional counsel for a number of very large clients that had huge scale litigation going on across the US. Our, our biggest client had 300,000 open cases wow. when I started. Yes. Uh, and so it appealed to me because I'm compulsive and anal retentive. So there's a lot of, you have to, you know, in, in terms of when you're doing litigation management, your national counsel, a lot of it is uniformity, mm-hmm. making sure that the same defense is asserted in Philadelphia as it is in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. uh, making sure that the discovery response is are not only accurate, but consistent. Because uh, when you get to that sort of scale of litigation, most of the work we did was asbestos related. All of the asbestos plaintiff's firms talk to each other. And we know that they share documents with each other. Um, we know that, yep. that discovery responses circulate amongst those attorneys. And so you had to make sure that everything was done uniformly and consistently. And um, I really loved working with the local attorneys we worked with all over the US. It, we developed really strong relationships. Um, as I moved up and went from being the low associate to the mid-level associate and eventually um, a principal, it, it, the, those relationships became like a, almost like a, a personal, like a deep friendship. And yeah. uh, people learned from being, who's, who's this guy? You know, I see his name on emails, et cetera, to, I know that Adam's answered 500 sets of, of discovery for this client and nobody is going to know the answer better than him. Um, or Adam has worked with these witnesses, these experts, talk to him. He's the best person to give you the information you need. And I, I loved it. Um, I really found occasionally I had more local litigation where I was the actual attorney and I was taking the depositions and filing the motions and everything else. But I found that one little subset within litigation that really worked for me. And that first firm that I started with in November of 2001, I was still working with those people in February of 2019. Oh, wow. Uh, wow. Yeah, I did one one attempt in 2005 to leave and went to, and I, I think most of us who have not been with one firm the entire time, I walked in on day one and said, oh no, what mistake have I made? And, <laughs> It was, yes. I think most of us have come across those places, whether we work at them or we know people who have worked there. And I, and three, I was there three and a half months. I never unpacked my boxes. Yeah. And when I gave my letter of resignation to the managing partner, he said, I, I kind of figured you weren't staying when you never unpacked your, your stuff. <laughs> Makes sense. Yeah. Well, the, or you could be like me. I was always paranoid. Like, well, if I hang stuff on the wall, as soon as I do, I'm going to get fired. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I always had that like fear in my head. Like, well, I can't get too comfortable. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, always- I was there th- three and a half months and I think something like four attorneys left in a, yeah. in a law firm of like 10 people. It was nuts. Yeah. It's always, I think it's important to sometimes tell those stories because I feel like a lot of uh, people think that you get into a law firm or a job or position and that's like it. And you have to either 
I don't know, like pay your dues or do your time, whatever it is in this like jail sentence for whatever period of time it may be, you know, and people don't realize like, you know, you can, you, you don't actually have to do that. Like if you find something else or if you're comfortable leaving for whatever reason, like, you know, you're not actually stuck there. And I, I, I always like hearing stories like that, you know? So, but it's scary too, though, especially like terrifying. <laughs> coming from like, and like coming from like a, a similar background that like, you know, we've had like Adam and I've had like, you're like, well, but like, it took me so long to like get, yeah. you know, a job. And then I was secure in this one area. And then I, I, at this one firm, and then I took a chance. And like, if I leave here, am I going to be then floating for a while? And I mean, sometimes that's okay, but I mean, it's, it's scary, especially if you have, you know, as we grow older, obviously we have more uh, expenses and responsibilities <laughs> and it's yeah. not the same as when you're, you know, 23 years old, you know, and have less, less on your plate. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, one thing um, I wanted to talk about though, because Adam, when you and I were talking on the phone though, you, we were, you were sharing a story about um, a particular mentor that you had along the way and you spoke very highly of this person. Um, and I wanted just to touch on the importance of mentors in you know, in, in career progression, as well as in our professional development and how like influential they they can be. Um, And you don't need to, if you're welcome to name drop, but you don't need to name drop the person if you don't want to. But I I think you, you had shared so eloquently. And so like, you just had so many great things to say about this person and how uh, influential they were on your career progression. I didn't want to like skip on over that. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think I've been very lucky um, because I've come across, even in situations that weren't ideal for me personally, wonderful people and people who have lit a candle for me to help show me the way. Um, sometimes it's, I, I mentioned working at McDermott, Will and Emery in Washington, D.C. It, it was a contract job, like you, you talked about. There were, at one point, maybe like 15 of us that were working on this one project. But um, you, I think, when you, you show yourself and the work you put into it, the good people will appreciate it and will value it. And the managing um, partner that was handling that project at McDermott, Will and Emery was the reference that got me that job in Philadelphia, my first job. And the person that you're talking about was someone in my very last legal position in 2019 worked at one of the really prestigious law firms in the Philadelphia area, was the managing partner actually of one of their suburban offices and is one of the most down to earth, lovely, incredible people I've ever met. In addition to being a supremely talented litigator. And I know that you have come across him in your own professional um, experience. And um, skipping ahead in my career progression, when I left my longtime firm, the firm that I, the group of people, we had passed through three firms, but as a group. So um, when I left that longtime job in February of 2019 to go to this big firm in Philadelphia, um, it didn't work out. It wasn't, I decided that I, my career in law was looking like a dead end. I worked on really two big clients and then one of them fired us in 2018. So I was working on one client it wasn't mine. And I knew that at some point the music would stop and where, where would I be also being, you know, in my mid forties, like you're saying with a mortgage, two children and all of the responsibilities that come with it. And I tried a completely different area of litigation, um, financial services litigation, which just wasn't a good match for me. Um, a lot of it was, um, doing for like contested foreclosure work, Half the time I had people on the phone crying to me. The other half of the time they were cursing at me. You know, how are you, you know, throwing them out of their homes and, and what have you. And just not the right match for me and, and what I, who I am and, and what I wanted to do day in and day out. And when I resigned, the first person that talked to me was this guy who pulled me into his office with the door closed for 30 minutes and said that he had a tremendous amount of respect for me, that you know, I was smart enough to realize that this wasn't the right fit for me. And the first thing he said was, take a day or two, regroup, think about what you want, and then let me know how I can help you. Yeah. And, and then the, yeah, managing part, you know, partner of an office with maybe 60 people working in it. And the first thing he said was, let me know how I can help you. Yeah. And 
what a blessing yes and like also a good you know reminder and lesson for any of us you know the impact that you can have by extending extending that that arm to to help you know um and you never know like how how it can help someone too um and it just speaks a lot to him in that role too that you know not being upset that you're leaving but being like okay like you know what can you know this wasn't the right fit for you so let's let's find the right fit yeah it's 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 such incredible he was so incredibly generous mm-hmm. you know both in terms of his encouragement and then also he he made a phone call for me that helped me get an interview that helped me get the job at the insurance company that I ended up working for I, I had you know changing careers changing um, fields um, and he was the one who had encouraged me to look really hard. I, I had applied for a few positions at that point in insurance, um, but he was a major assistance in um, encouraging me. I had two interviews with a smaller insurance broker um, to work. They had a small TPA. Um, that didn't work out, um, but he called somebody that he knew that led to most likely my resume you know, floating to the top. Um, and yeah. getting called for an interview at, at um, this insurance company. And that was my entrance into the world of insurance. And I owe it not exclusively to him, I, you know, but he was a huge part of that. Um, and I mean, having that help it, in, when you're finding, try, looking for a job is so important because we all know like how difficult it is to get get your resume to the, to the, in front of the right people. And you can't be too proud to ask for help because I mean, if you're just applying on online, chances are it's not going to get anywhere. But if you have, even if you apply online and then get someone else to get it in front of the right person, it helps tremendously. Yeah. I'm old enough to remember a time when there was an actual live person that you would send your resume (laughs) to. (laughs) <laughs> now you know now it's uh you know careers at you know, supply whatever you know the abbreviation of the company or firm or what have you but yes i, I mean it, it drastically improves your chances of at least getting an interview and giving you the chance to sell yourself if you have any sort of connection um, that can get you through that door um so <clears throat> So then you went to this insurance company. And so how was the transition from, uh, for, for you from get, being at a, a firm to then suddenly switching gears and being on the other side of the, I wouldn't say other side of the table, but different side of the table. Yeah, and, and that's how I kind of look at it. And, and now working for a broker, I feel like I'm sitting at the same table. I just keep changing the chairs <laughs> yeah, at the table. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, yeah, it, it's it like really those tables in elementary school that like have, they're like kind of circular and the teacher sits in the middle and then you're <laughs> off. Exactly. Rotate around the outside of it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it, it was a very different experience. And, you know, I don't want to rub it in on either of you, but not filling time. <laughs> Not billing time changes your life in the most unbelievable ways. Um, it, it was a lot to handle at first, um, but they knew where I was coming from. They knew what my background was. And um, the, the insurance company hired me to do professional liability claims because they prefer attorneys to be involved if, if possible, especially in the more senior level claim positions. Having litigated all over the U.S. because I did national counsel work, I know what a case looks like in Missouri. I know what a case looks like in Madison County, Illinois, or Los Angeles County. Um, and that, when you work for a national insurance company, really could be a benefit. Yeah. I will tell you that the first week I was handed a stack, like yay big, of insurance policies and told, go home and read these. Um, <laughs> and it, they, I'm trying to think, I think the first week, the first two days were purely training. And then starting on day three or four, I got a couple of new claims assigned to me every day. And I ramped up on um, claims that were pre-existing that had belonged to other adjusters who had left. And by the end of maybe the second week, I was up to 60, 70 claims. Yeah. Um, and unfortunately for me, I, I wonder if I'd still be working as an adjuster at this point if the pandemic hadn't started. That was my sixth mm-hmm. week. Yeah. So 
I started in mid to late January of 2020. And I, on the Thursday, the, the CEO sent out everyone at the company an email. We all had laptops. He said, you take your laptops home. Let's test this tomorrow and see how we do working remotely. And I think around 2 or 2.30 in the afternoon, we got an email that said, congratulations, you are all now remote workers. <laughs> I had a very similar experience. <laughs> yeah. So. I mean, of course, none of us knew what was going to happen. And even yeah. our children were told, you know, at school, it'd be two weeks. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, life, life threw us all a curveball um, at that point. But I, so I, I got most of my training remotely and yeah. um, learned on the job. I have wonderful people in my group that I worked with. That's why I say I, I wonder if things would have been different sitting across the aisle from them and being able to, you know, lean my head over and say, hey, you know, what do you think if I do this or should I call this person um, and how that w- would have maybe changed the experience. But um, I think at my peak, I was handling 230 open claim files somewhere in that neighborhood. My colleague had over 300, yeah. um, you know, claims. Unfortunately, I think it's only accelerated over the last two years. We see it a lot as brokers. There's a lot of turnover. There are a lot of people leaving the claim side. So we're, I, I deal every day with adjusters who I can tell are overwhelmed with what yeah. they're trying to handle. And um, even when I'm advocating on behalf of one of our clients now, I always do it in a respectful and gentle way because I, I have so, so much respect for the people in the claims side. Uh, in, in insurance companies because it's right now it's just a crushing load. And, and so do you think that's why they're, we're seeing that big turnover is because of, you know, the, the workload that's expected of a lot of claims adjusters? I think right now there seems to be a lot of um, movement within the insurance companies. So someone will go from one department to another insurer's department. I see the same names pop up in a different place. Um, I think, you know, that there are people who are experienced who are looking for a better quality of life or better experience. Um, My experience was that I worked directly for one manager within my group and you're, you're kind of stuck. Like that's it. There are, there were three other managers within our group. Other people had different experiences based on who their managers were. Um, One of the oddities is I, I mentioned earlier about being compulsive and, and a little retentive perhaps in my life. And I think that the fact that I cared so much about my work and my work product and the, the kind of experience that our, our insureds were getting, that I, I just felt overwhelmed by the end yeah. of my time at the insurance company. I felt like I wasn't doing my job adequately enough. And I started to have like small scale panic attacks even. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah from, yeah. from the scale of the work and just feeling like I couldn't keep up with it. Right. Because you couldn't, because you have a certain level that you want to service each claim. And when you have that many claims, you can't give it as much attention as probably you, you felt like it, it deserves. So then, then you, internally, you probably feel like I'm not doing everything I should be doing for this particular claim, but you just simply do not have time. Yeah. I think, and, I, I think that's kind of the reality in, in most claims experiences. Maybe I, in particular, wasn't as well suited to it because I'm a little more high strung and care maybe I, I don't want to make it sound like other people don't care but yeah I was so focused on the quality of my work product and the experience that our insurers were having that I, I find that people who are a little more relaxed and low strung um, tend to succeed better in those claims positions than than I did yeah I I, I envision a lot of like waking up in the, at like two or three o'clock in the morning in that like sweaty panic <laughs> <laughs> which there were times yep. at, you know at, in, in my, my life, when I had a large caseload, I, I would do this, feel the same way. Like you just didn't have enough time to give attention to each case. You kind of were just like rushing through that I would wake up with those panics and like, like did, was it filed? It, it, yeah. Like, or am I late? And like, I, I, it was awful. Like having a, for me, having a smaller caseload or, or having, you know, associates help me out makes it a lot easier because you're like, you know, things are, are taken care of and it, you, you're only one person. <laughs> yeah. When you were carrying all of those, when you were doing all of those cases and you had that really high load for claims, Adam, did you have like a strategy that you used to, 
you know, try and kind of keep things on track or like, you know, I call them like for me, like my default settings, like things that I know that I'm going to do this no matter what, because even on my worst day, I can return to my default setting, you know, when things got to be too overwhelming, you know? Yeah. I I think coming from law um, really helped because you have to be organized and you, you have to really think things through. Um, My manager had, over 30 years of experience at this particular insurer, but um, just in general and insurance as well. And she actually was really helpful. She said, and this is one of the weird things about insurance and claims in particular, it's different than law. There will be times you will learn during the week where all times are not equal. Fridays are usually the day that I would set aside for writing. So when I had to do my coverage letters, Fridays are the quietest day generally in insurance. Mondays are by far the worst (laughs) because you deal with not only the claims that come in on Monday, but everything from over the weekend as well. So it's Mm -hmm. usually, oh, it's, it's usually a tsunami on Mondays. Um, And learning those ins and outs really helped as time went on. Unfortunately, because my claim load was as great as it was and because I was new and because I was somewhat struggling, I found myself writing letters on Saturdays and then occasionally writing letters on Sundays and it turned into a seven-day job and um, luckily we were in the pandemic so there wasn't all that much (laughs) to do you know compared to what normal times would be but um, I was working way more um, in terms of hours than I ever worked in law Mm -hmm. other than when I was on trial and you know where you're basically working like 20 hours a day but um, other than that it, it was it was so consuming and I was stressed and I was working on weekends and um, still not building time, which definitely helped. But um, I I really, I mean, when you're handling over 200 claim files, you get experience quickly. Um, So I had all sorts of professional liability claims, directors and officers claims, a lot of EPL claims. um, And we had a particularly large book of homeowners association claims as well and you know there's no there's nothing that compares with just doing it and we did it and being a remote all that time I mean I did it I don't want to say on my own because you know certain things obviously for which the manager would need to either sign off on things or I would need her approval or um or what have you but I jumped right into mediations which is something that obviously with a law background was a perfect fit and I was doing it from the second week really on. I was there for 14 months and every day was a new adventure, but um, there's the same, same sort of alarm in claims as there I, I found in, in law, which is cases can be repetitive, but everyone has particular facts or scenarios that make it a little bit different and finding those and, and handling those and, um, you know, getting success both for the insurance company and for our insureds really, I think, was a, a great experience. Um, I, it, and I have to go back to when you mentioned like working, like bleeding over to the weekends and stuff. And, you know, I feel like at that time, though, too, we, it, it was just it happened everywhere because we were all like juggling so much like during the day, yeah. with this, the homeschooling and the, I mean, everything like I, w- I mean, no one was as productive as they normally could be because there were just suits despite having nowhere to go and nothing to do, there was so much going on in our own homes that you just probably weren't as efficient during that your like normal time that you had to kind of bleed over to the weekend. I mean, I remember I was waking up super early trying to get things done before the kids woke up because I knew once they got on online school, I wasn't going to be able to have a complete thought for several hours. <laughs> <laughs> and then you would just, and then I would just have to push it, the rest of my stuff to the night. So, I mean, and couple that into like being in a new position too. And, and, and like, I mean, completely new role for you. Like, I, I'm not surprised. That's just kind of how it, it rolled forward on you. Yeah, I was lucky. I, I worked in a great department with wonderful people and I'm lucky one of them actually joined me at my current employer hub. Um, she came over about five months after I started and we worked together every day. I saw her yesterday. We sit next to each other in the office. Yeah. Um, and so it, that's, it's nice. And, and people remain friends to this day. Some people you know, just handle it 
better. They're just better suited to it, I think. Um, and others maybe cope better. I know one of my former colleagues there does acupuncture several times a month to deal with the stress and the anxiety. So I guess yeah. you find <laughs> whatever gets you through the night, you know? So, yeah. So let, let's fast forward. To, so you, what brought you to Hub and, and moving on to the, the broker side um, of insurance? Yeah, I, to be honest, it's dumb luck. Um, I wish I could say that, that it was fated to be, but um, I was actually working here in my home office and preparing to open my own legal practice because I had just decided that I needed to control my experience and that this was going to be the best way forward. And you know, I still had two children in middle school and high school and this way I could work around their schedules. And I got a call from an insurance recruiter who I had touched base with at some point. I don't remember the first time or the last, but she told me that she had an opening with a national insurance broker that she had placed people at before. And she knew that it was a great environment. And she thought that my background, both in law and in claims, would be a good fit. And I, I had had interviews both at the insurance company that I was working for and after I left. Um, with brokers, with you know, other insurers, none of them really clicked, um, unfortunately. Uh, some of them got to be final round interviews. I know one company told me they were going to hire me and then just never did. Um, right. That makes yes. me feel good. <laughs> yes. It's, it's, a, it's always something. Not for the I, faint I actually, of heart. I deal with new, them every week now. Yeah, I deal with them every week now. whole new experience of being ghosted. <laughs> no. Um, but... I, I had two interviews. I, the, the two people I met were the person who was my initial boss and um, his, his boss, who is now the chief operating officer of our company. And I, I could tell that there was just something different about them and about there was a, hum, a real humanity to them in addition to their being experienced professionals. Both of them are attorneys. Both of them um, started and had brief careers in law and now much more extensive experience in the insurance, both uh, at carriers and at brokers. And um, it, it turned out to be, I, I thought I was being hired to be one of, of six people on our team. And now here I am, it's 14 months later and I'm the dedicated number two to my boss. Yeah, awesome. um, yeah I haven't, my, my title hasn't changed, but They've looked after me. They, they've told me they want me to be part of the future of the company. Um, they want me to stay for a long time. And I now handle our like, most complex claims, the highest value claims. I have one claim that's $35 million, which is wow. obviously far bigger than anything I, I handle <laughs> in law. Um, and, I, and I love it. Every day is like a new puzzle. Um, I love working with our clients. And most importantly, I just love the people I work with. It's my dream job. Yeah. And now I remember what, you, re oh, sorry. No, you're good. Um, I remember you recently posted about, like, I think it was on your anniversary um, of being at Hub, like how, how grateful and happy you were with the position. And it's, it's so good to hear. Cause I feel like, you know, we've all, we all bob and weave in our careers and it's, it's, it's a comforting feeling when you find a place you're like, okay, like not that you can just relax, but like you, you could just focus on what you need to you focus on the job and do it well. And there's not all those outside factors that, that could be negatively affecting that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I had gone through the process probably in 2017 or thereabouts of working with a career coach. And I did that over several months. Um, and he, I think the most valuable piece of that was deconstructing and then constructing what my perfect job would be. And at that time, I was expecting it to be in law, maybe as an outside counsel or general counsel, assistant general counsel, something like that. But what I realize now, going back and looking at the materials that I, I put together back then, I have probably about 85% to 90% of that baked into my current job. Yeah, that's awesome. Um Oh, sorry, Lindsay, I interrupted you before and I was just about to interrupt you again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just going to say, are you still doing the professional liability claims, Adam? Yes. Okay. So and how I many work... cases do you think you carry now? So in, in, at Hub, we, yeah, at Hub, we have two different teams. We have one that's a property and casualty team. 
-hmm. And then my group is called the specialty lines group. We handle all the, the same types of policies that I was handling when I was in Philadelphia. Um, in addition to, I handle cyber now, which is probably the most interesting type of claim that, that comes in, and certainly the most mm-hmm. urgent when I see them. And um, I, I just, I love it. Um, it's, it's a, every day is interesting. Um, every day is a little bit different, but I have the quality of life that I always dreamt of. Yeah. Um, you know, when I worked, when I switched things up and moved into insurance, my first job, I was making about 50% less than I made in mm-hmm. my prime in law. Mm. So that was, that was bitter, but yes. <laughs> I kind of took my lumps for, you know, the, the initial time knowing that I needed to get the experience. I mean, my initial hope was that I would be at that insurance company for a long time. It wasn't yeah. to use it to jump to something else. It's just kind of the way that, that it's worked out. Now I have a salary that is not my old law salary, but is commensurate with my experience. And I sign off most nights between five and five 30. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. I check my phone. If I work on the weekend, my boss makes a point of telling me the next week, like, Hey, take an afternoon off. <laughs> Go watch your daughter play volleyball. Uh, <laughs> things that you just didn't hear in law. Yeah. Um, uh-huh. yeah. I do think some of that culture is changing a little bit, or at least, I don't know. I don't feel it here, but I, I'm hopeful that it's changing overall, that um, there is more of a push for balance. I mean, it's never perfect, especially on the, uh, at the firm side, because you, you always have those billables and they're always there and they're not changing. Um, but at least I've felt over the years has evolved to be a little bit more um, fr- family welcoming, I should say. <laughs> so one thing I'm wondering though, so you know, on the broker side, going from an insurance company where you're dealing directly with uh, outside counsel, and now on the broker side, you also are dealing with outside outside counsel. Are there any things that you know you notice, especially from practicing for so long, that outside counsel does that one is like good, and other other on the other side, like you do not like it, that you could share. Use improvement. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I would say that the, the number one thing that most important for know your client, even if it's a client that's assigned to you by an insurer you haven't worked with before, take the time to get to know them, what they care about, what's most important, how they work, who you should talk to, how often they want updates. Some of the insurers that I work with, they scream and yell that they're not getting updates, you know, every month or and then there are others that scream and yell, I'm getting billed for all these updates. <laughs> <laughs> Asking those questions, those are important questions. And um, we have we have clients who are in the, the same sort of scale in the same industry, and they have two different ways of approaching their legal issues. And so knowing that is important. Mm-hmm. I would say I, I had the, wasn't fun experience of having a, an attorney removed from representing one of our clients during the first week of representation, because in this particular EPL matter, the attorney called the opposite attorney, talked to the opposite attorney, discussed the possibility of settlement before he ever talked to our client. Yeah. Mm. And they found out about it. Our client was someone who doesn't litigate very often. And so it was a relatively new process and they were stunned that the, the defense lawyer had a great relationship apparently with the plaintiff's lawyer, but it really rubbed them the wrong way that the, that settlement had been discussed before even initial yeah. phone call. So yeah. yeah, getting to know your client and, and what, you know, especially when they're inexperienced, wow, is that crucially yeah. important? Yeah. And especially you being on the broker side now, like you, you, you're in the middle like uh, of these relationships too. So you were also probably a little bit more attuned to the client needs than, than versus like when you're working for an insurer that a lot of times the attorney's dealing directly with a claims adjuster on, on those, those decisions and not necessarily the, the insured. Um, but now in your role, it's, it's a little bit different. Sometimes things are written into the policy, like how, how you know, the choice of counsel, how, you know, everything could be written into the policy or at least the agreement for the policy. So it's hard for, you're, in a, you're kind of managing a lot. 
Yeah, the other weird thing that I have to do is when I jump on the conference calls that I remind the attorneys that I, while I have the ESQ after my name on my signature block, that I am not, you know, I'm not serving as a function of an attorney and that if they have any concerns about attorney-client privilege, that we should discuss them before the phone call and not not after it's taken place. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's that's a little bit different, but um, most of the time that's not an issue um, due to the like, sort of the joint defense yeah. privilege and, and otherwise. I think there are certain states where the attorneys tend to worry about that a little bit more, but um, I, I work with attorneys on a, on a daily basis. Some uh, I work with adjusters who are attorneys on a daily basis. Oh, I was just going to say, so you said that your cyber claims were some of your most interesting claims that you handled. Why do you find them to be so interesting then? One, there's an urgency to them. Not that every claim is an urgent, but um, literally we stop everything that we're doing when a new claim, a cyber claim comes in. I think the interesting part, quite honestly, is working with our clients, the insureds. Cyber coverage is different than any other coverage that we offer. And the way that the coverage is set up is different than any other. I know that there's one major carrier that we write a lot of our cyber policies through, and they have written declarations that you are welcome to use your own vendors. But if you do, your retention will go from A to A plus (laughs) significant thousands of dollars and your limits will decrease, including the aggregate limit, your per claim and aggregate limits will decrease. And we we now actually have talking points that we're working on for clients so that whenever the first conversation takes place, um, we talk about vendors, we talk about the need to consult with the people at the carrier before retaining anyone mm-hmm. and not to run up large invoices with outside vendors that end up um, being eaten most likely because mm-hmm. you're, it, it's such a crucial thing to follow the terms of the policy and um, the vendor experience that the carrier has. Yeah. yeah. Do you ever experience on, on your end now, like when, when you have clients that do have the choice of counsel um, and they can go with their choice of counsel that sometimes you find that if it were up to you, that maybe that would not be your choice of counsel, <laughs> but you kind of have to defer it to them. Yeah, um, in particular, I think I have, we have a very robust community association book. And um, I work with some really large companies, especially in New York metropolitan area on that. Um, we see people's names, but it's all about being professional, um, understanding the person's strengths and, and weaknesses, and somehow you know, making sure that everything gets covered. Um, we, I, I, I'm obviously not going to name any names, but there's a particular, (laughs) yeah, there's a particular attorney in New York who happens to represent one of our uh, clients um, in in a couple of different places. And I know when that case, what, you know, what in particular from a discovery point of view, I'm going to need to do and how I'm going to need to support her in order to get the client um, to the best place that I can get them to. Yeah. One thing I do need to comment on about New York practice, though, is what what I found, like if you're in the boroughs, um, having counsel that is also in like in the boroughs, it makes a big difference because it's just the New York practice there is so much different than the rest of the state. And I just think there's a way that those attorneys communicate and that how things are done in in just there that is just vastly different from the remaining New York state. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, and they, they know the people from outside Yeah, in, in a heartbeat. The judges know them. Yeah. The other oh, yeah. attorneys obviously will know them. And it does make a difference. There's, there's absolutely no doubt. Yeah, there, I, when, I, I don't particularly practice in New York, but there was a few cases I had to pro hoc in and going to a mediation. I was clearly the alien in the room. Like I did and how they did mediations was totally different how I was used to doing mediations. Like it was just a much more relaxed process, but I, I, it was clear that they were like, this girl doesn't know how we do things. Like, and they didn't even care. <laughs> no. When I was first admitted to the New Jersey bar, there was still the bona fide office rule, which yeah. prohibited a lot of Pennsylvania and New York attorneys from, from practicing on a regular basis in New Jersey. 
And if you went to the Camden vicinage for motion day on Friday, what you'd find is the Philadelphia attorneys, we would typically show up in suits with ties <laughs> and the Camden uh, or the New Jersey attorneys would wear sport coats with slacks. And that's how, you know, the judges or, or other people <laughs> were able to, to tell the difference. It was unbelievable. So, yeah. I, well, I remember something similar too, but the, when I first started doing New Jersey arbitrations, comparing it to Philadelphia arbitrations, I remember going in and my first one, I was talking to a colleague and he's like, oh, it, like now you don't even need to like do much. You just walk in and you talk about the case. I'm like, wait, you don't need to like prepare an opening statement. And he was like, no, like, he's like, it's pretty much like a, a mediation. And, and it, I don't know if it, that's, I don't think that's totally true across the board, but it was true <laughs> in that instance, thankfully since I listened to his advice, um, <laughs> but there was a it was definitely less formal than the Philadelphia arbitrations at least, and Pennsylvania arbitrations I had been to at that point. Yeah, it's, it's fun, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Multi-state practice is super fun. <laughs> so, you know, we, we're just about out of time, but, you know, I, I didn't want to leave you without asking you this. I ask this of everyone who's on, on the podcast, you know, knowing what you know now throughout the duration of your career, what advice would you give to your younger self? You know, when I, I when I was a more senior attorney, I had the privilege of training and kind of mentoring some of the younger attorneys. And I always talked to them about how important it was obviously to do good work, to work really hard, but I always reminded them to look after themselves. Mm -hmm. And especially if as a young attorney coming up in law, it's very easy to get drawn into pleasing others and focusing on others, but you always have to, in the back of your mind at least, and then as you get to year three, four, five, start to think of yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's easy to get lost and find yourself too far down the road having not done that um, because the firms are always going to want you to do what they want what they want for themselves. They're going to want like a certain number of hours build. They're going to want their clients obviously to be happy, but at some point down the road, it, it will be, you know, it will, it will become incumbent upon you to have your own book and to have your own practice and to not be so dependent on other people. Um, and so I would always remind people, even in year one and two, just keep that in the back of your mind as you go forward. How do I get from point A to where I want to be at point B? whether that be five years, six years, seven years down the road. And, and I would just add to that too, is like, you can't be dependent or expecting someone else to teach you that as well. Like the, especially with developing your own book, like, yes, you might get to a place that someone is going to help you develop that, but you can't expect that's going to happen. So you kind of have to take it into your own hands. And hopefully, yes, you'll, you'll eventually, you will get some assistance, but you you really have to look out for your, yourself first if, if that's your goal. Yeah, I think the practice of law has changed a lot. Yeah. With um, our, our parents' generation, people joined law firms and they were often there their entire career or maybe you know 20 or 30 years. And there was a process. And you knew that if you made the sacrifices and you did the things that were expected of you, that you would be handled appropriately. Now, I think starting in, in you talked about the recession in 07, 08. I think that shook up the law industry in such unbelievable ways. And now everybody, no matter, you know, the person who's five years out or the person who's been there for 40 years, it's what have you done this year? Yeah. 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 And I think are that's we, true. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that's true about a lot of industries that, you know, people thought that they would be there for, you know, years. I mean, you know, you think about, like you said, I mean, our parents' generations, at least both my parents, like we're both in their jobs for 35, 40 years, you know, and that's not, not nearly as common anymore now, even though I still think that uh, in our, in the back of our minds that somehow like the goal, you know, um, but like you said, if you're not evaluating as time goes on, as you go down every, the path, you know, you could end up not really, feeling it, you know, and just thinking that this is where you have to be, you know? Yeah. 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 And especially what I, you know, we're heading into a, a very unknown territory right now. We don't, none of us know what's going to happen in like the coming months or year with the economy. And, you know, we, we've had these shakeups before. So I think, you know, everyone's a little nervous about what 
what may be before us and how things are going to shift because it's going to shift we just we don't know how <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> and so. i hope it's it's the right shift i mean i ended up in litigation because that was the jobs to have in 2008 so <laughs> let's hope litigation stays strong <laughs> yeah well thank you so much for having me on i really do appreciate the opportunity to chat with both of you Yes, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your day and sitting down and chatting with us, Adam. I, I always appreciate the, you know, your, the time that you've, you've given me over, over the years. And I, I'm so happy that you came, came on today and, and you know, sat with us and you know, talked about your career and how, how it changed and the, you know, the lessons that you've learned along the way. Yeah, My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, for all everyone listening out there, if you like what you hear, please like and subscribe to the Defense of Arrest on Apple Podcasts. You can also find us at YouTube at TDNR Podcasts. Thank you.